Would you take a Bible with you, uh, with me this morning, and turn to the book of Job? We started last week looking at the beginning of the book of Job, and today we get to the end. And I want to read three texts this morning, and I'm going to invite you to remain seated. Um, I want to read the first few verses of chapter 3, the first few verses of chapter 38, and the first few verses of chapter 42. But I want to begin uh, with chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. Job answered, today my complaint is again bitter. My strength is weighed down because of my groaning. Oh, that I could know how to find him, meaning God. Come to his dwelling place. I would lay out my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments, know the words with which he would answer, understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me through brute force? No, he would surely listen to me. There, those who do the right thing can argue with him. I could escape from my judge forever. But look, I go east and he's not there. West, and I don't discover him. North in his activity, and I don't grasp him. He turns south, and I don't see. And then chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this darkening counsel with words lacking knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. I will interrogate you, and I... And you will respond to me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you know. Who set its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring tape on it? On what were its footings sunk? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning star sang in unison and all the divine beings shouted? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, the dense clouds its wrap? When I imposed my limit for it, put, a, put on a bar and doors and said, you may come this far, but no farther. Here your proud waves stop. I kind of wish I had James Earl Jones's voice when I could read that section. But my, ver- my voice works for chapter 42, Job's response. And Job answered the Lord, I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand, wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will inform me. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes." the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've told you this story a long time ago. Um, It's a story I I tell frequently. Uh, Two, three weeks ago, Deb and I celebrated our our 33rd anniversary. 
we got married, I was working part-time on my seminary degree. Um, Fuller had an extension program in Seattle at that time, but, but I was the last class that had to go to campus for at least a year to finish. And so we'd kind of done the math and realized after being married a year, we, we had to move to California. So the first time we moved to Pasadena, it was 1991. The part I love to tell about the story is that when we moved down there, I'd been uh, my dad's youth minister after graduating from here. Um, but Debbie said to me, hey, Scott, you know, you're going to be in ministry our whole marriage. We're never going to be able to sit together in church. Why don't you get a normal job, right, for a year, and we can just go to church like normal people. Problem is, we got to California, and in two months, we were out of money, and we had discovered I have no other marketable skills. Um, and so she looked at me and said, I don't care if we ever sit together in church or not. Go get a job. We were attending Pasadena first, the, the church I ended up pastoring a few years later. We were attending there, but they were in a pastoral transition. They weren't going to hire anybody, and so I was kind of stuck. So I, I saw on the job board at the seminary, there was a, an announcement for a young adults pastor, a college and young adults pastor at this uh, lovely congregational church in our neighborhood. And so I took it down. I, I called them, and they said, you know, we've interviewed three or four people, and, and we think we might found the right candidate, but we, yeah, sure, let's talk. We'll talk to one more. So I sprinted over there and met with this person. It was just one of those moments where we just clicked. It was just wonderful. And, and our kind of hearts resonated with each other. He looked at me and said, we're hiring you. You're starting Sunday. And I, we had never attended church there for worship, but I was too poor to say no. And so, uh, so I, I love telling the story. I showed up and I had a jacket on. I looked a lot like I look today. Um, and uh, that did not look like anything <laughs> represented in this young adult group. They all came in shorts and flip-flops. And, and this van pulled up and this rock band poured out. Um, and I, I love to tell the story about that year of ministry was really delightful. In fact, um, it was scary in some ways. God blessed so much. Um, the lead singer in that rock band became a Christian, really knew nothing about faith, started inviting a bunch of people. I think I baptized about 50 new Christians that year out of that group. But it was scary. I mean, there's nothing scarier than people who are reading the Bible for the first time and don't know what questions they're not supposed to ask, right? And I was so glad I had seminary professors to run to and say, help, um, but after leading that group for about a year, this young man who had been the lead singer in this group, who'd become a Christian and really had become the leader of this group we now called Oasis, uh, one Friday night, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, he was hurrying home from, or leaving work and hurrying to go pick up his girlfriend, Jennifer, was heading north through Pasadena, ran a yellow light and didn't see the fire truck coming the other direction and hit him, killed him instantly. Um... So a couple of days later, Jennifer called me and said, hey, um, Pastor Scott, uh, I, Brian's family took the body to, to Anaheim, where they are from. They're going to cremate his body, and I feel like I really need to see him to have closure. There wasn't going to be a viewing or anything like that. And she said, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I can do that by myself. Would you go with me? I didn't want to, but I knew the right answer. Pastoral answer was, yes, I'll go. But we went down and, and drove down to Anaheim, went to this, um, this mortuary. It, it was really, it was my first uh, pastoral experience um, in that kind of tragedy. 
And I have to tell you, it was not pleasant. Um, he was still just kind of his body on a, on a cart there, um, pretty bruised and battered. When she saw him and we, I saw him, that was pretty emotional, as you can imagine. I'll never forget, it was, it was a beautiful summer day. We were in Debbie's little red convertible. It was just me and Jennifer headed home. We were stuck on the 57 going north at Southern California. We were stuck in traffic. We had not said a word to each other for probably about 20 minutes and had another hour or so to go before we got home. Finally, Jennifer broke the silence and said to me, Scott, do you think these people all around us know that they're just dead bodies waiting to happen? I said, well, Jen, I doubt if, they th I doubt if they're thinking about that right now. But probably deep in their heart, they probably know that. She was silent for another 20 minutes or so. And finally turned to me with tears just flooding down her cheeks and said, Scott, I don't know what to do. I am so, so angry at God. Nobody really knows why the book of Job came into existence. The guesses are that it was written fairly late in Israel's history. And my guess is it was written this way. Somewhere there was a really educated, bright, young Jewish, probably male, reflecting on all he had experienced and all he knew about the life of his people. The 10 tribes that we usually refer to as Ephraim or Israel, the prophets say had been disobedient to the covenant and so Assyria came and conquered them and they, they basically disappeared. Probably his people, the people of Judah, got swallowed up into exile in Babylon and thanks be to God, some survived and were upchucked back into life, right? Like Jonah were brought back to Jerusalem and the rebuilding project of Ezra and Nehemiah took place. And again, the prophets would speak into that and say, because the people were disobedient, they got swallowed up. But because of God's great, great grace, some got to come back. But, but my guess is he was sitting around one day and thinking, I get that. But between you and me, that seems a bit, little bit like overkill. For certainly some of those Ephraimites and Israelites who were conquered by Assyria, some of them are really idolatrous and bad, but, but not all of them, right? Surely there were some faithful ancestors in there somewhere who still were conquered by the violence of Assyria. And certainly there were some Judeans who were unfaithful and like Jonah were fleeing from God's purposes and got swallowed, but not all of them, certainly. And some of them who died in Babylon, who experienced such horrible things in exile, surely they didn't deserve everything that they received. And so struggling with the kind of e easy math, if you will, of the earlier part of the scripture that we've been walking through, that if you do good things, good things happen, but if you do bad things, bad things happen. My guess is he was sitting there some day, one day and just angry at God, at the circumstances, and feeling like not all of this was just. 
And thanks be to God, inspired by the Spirit, sat down and wrote, there once was a man named Job from the city of Uts, who was righteous in all he did. And so it has felt right, those of you who have journeyed with us these last several days through the book of Job, it's felt really right to journey through that book again. It's felt really right to do that actually during the Lenten season. And this morning I want to reflect a little bit about what I think we can take from this beautiful, poetic, mysterious, troubling book. And I want to do something that I'm not really happy with today. Because part of me thinks a book like this, you're just supposed to kind of read and have its poetry just wash over you and mess with you a little bit. And then you should probably just sit there and think about it for a while. And one of the most dangerous things to do is to kind of say, and now as we've read this book, here are the five things we can take away from it that all start with the letter B, right? And I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't like to do that kind of stuff. But I want to take, I, I, there are nine, nine things that start with nothing. That um, I do think if you and I were going to sit down over coffee and, and talk about what, what should we take away from a book like Job? Here, here are some things that I do think we should take away. And I, I think I have some slides to help us. But as I think about Job's friends, I want to think about some of the things that we learn from Job's friends. And, and here's something I think we can take away. That part of emotional and spiritual maturity includes making space for life's complexities without losing some of its simplicities. I was listening to a podcast this week about young people and their development. And this developmental specialist was talking about how important it is when we're young that we actually do have some black and white things in our lives. That we learn that if we do this, then this will happen. And if we do this, then this will happen. So kids, if you do your homework, you will get good grades. And if you don't do your homework, you will not get good grades. And there are some kind of basic rules and patterns to life. It is right that the deuterohistoric tradition wants to say, if you will choose life and honor God, great things will come your way. But if you walk away from that and choose death, then death will come. And this researcher was talking about when we're young, we really need to have that. In fact, one of, they were talking about one of the great tragedies of this generation is that they have to kind of grow up with the complexities of life too quickly. And they don't have time to kind of ruminate on the foundations, if you will. But here's the other tragedy. So they were saying, if you're 12 years old and you haven't learned some of the basic building blocks of life, that's a tragedy. But if you're 56 and you haven't learned that life's a little more complex than that, and you're still living with those simplicities, that too is a tragedy. And one of the things we see in Job's friends is they've never quite matured to that place that says, sometimes we do A and B and C isn't the result. And so they keep trying to force everything back into that simplicity and fail to see the complexity that is the mystery of our life with each other and with God. Another thing I think that we can learn from Job's friends is, is this. Our simplistic then theological statements out of that, especially to those who are suffering, and I'll come back to this phrase in a moment. For example, saying to people, everything happens for a reason, are not only unhelpful, 
but are also often hurtful and potentially untrue. I've now uh, been with a lot of people in some pretty terrible and tragic circumstances. And I know one of our Christian impulses, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, is to come along those who are suffering and try to say to them, listen, your pain is hurting me, and so let me try to make this better for you. And so we say things to people like, and I've heard this one a lot, and I really wish Christians would just strike it from their vocabulary, frankly. We say to people, listen, we know everything happens for a reason, or something like this. If we could see things from God's perspective, we could understand why this is really good and not actually bad. In the situation I was telling you about, as we were preparing for Brian's funeral, a woman came to me and said, Pastor Scott, you know, I've been around the church a long time and I've seen a lot of these situations and sometimes I think God just has to take somebody like that when they're young because God knows, wants to take them while they're being faithful to him. Knows he may have walked away later in life. <laughs> I, I, I'm kinder now. I would probably say to that person, thank you. Don't tell anybody else that, but thank you. <laughs> I looked at her and said, yeah, and maybe he would have grown up and taken the experiences of transformation that God brought in his life and been the greatest revival preacher since Billy Graham. We'll never know, will we? But don't tell anybody that. <laughs> so... Um, Sometimes when we take our simplistic theology and impose that on people who are suffering, like Job's friends did to him, not only do we say things that in their case were untrue, and later when God shows up, he tells them how untrue what they said was. But rather than actually helping people, we impose a sense of guilt upon them. Because of their hurt, because of their sadness, because of their anger with God and with others. And I think we learn from Job's friends then a line here that I borrow from uh, one of my favorite films. It's kind of dark, but it's a film called Dead Man Walking. I used to show it in class because I, the life of Sister Helen Prejean and her ministry with inmates on death row is so beautiful. And the film pictures this amazing transformation in this one person's life. But in the film, there's this moment where she's struggling with the fact that she's loving this person who's really horrible and ugly and broken, and she isn't sure she should be loving him. And she has this vision where she realizes what she's doing is inviting him to her family table. And she doesn't know if she should do that, but she, she hears the voice of her mother say to her, and it's one of my favorite lines, her mother's voice says to her, Sister Helen, annunciations are common, but incarnations are rare. Annunciations are common, incarnations are rare. Far more than nine speeches, what Job needed from his friends was somebody to sit and be present with him in the ashes of his life. To sit beside him and weep with him, hurt with him. Annunciations are common, but incarnations are rare. As I think about Job, there are some things that I think we learn from Job. One of those is we should be careful to judge our own life and faith as well as the life and faith of others by our circumstances. I feel like I've learned this a little bit in ministry. As I shared, that first year of ministry, not only did I think God was good, I thought I was pretty good too. Man, I, this thing's growing. Right? 
And I've learned across 30-something years of ministry now, there are kind of seasons in ministry. I don't know that, and maybe I need to learn to say some new things or do some new things, but, and I know that I get in God's way often. But I've come to realize that oftentimes (laughs) when 3,000 people get saved in one day, you praise God and call it Pentecost. And then just a few chapters later, somebody who is deeply faithful is dragged out and stoned to death all alone. And somehow the scripture doesn't call that failure, but like the mystery of the cross, somehow sees that and calls it the victory of God. Which means that we should be pretty careful and Job's friends should have been more careful and maybe even Job too at assuming that because circumstances were broken, so were the decisions that he had made in his life. Sometimes circumstances are the result of other person's choices or our choices, but sometimes they are not clear reflections of that. So we should be careful how we judge not only ourselves, but how we judge each other. I think we also learn from Job that the lifelong journey of faith not only may, but probably will contain what St. John of the Cross calls dark nights of the soul. When we experience not the actual absence of God, but when we experience what feels like the absolute absence of God. And please hear this. Depression is not a sin. Depression is not a sin. Wednesday night in our group, as we were talking about going through the scripture, uh, Brandy was defending Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar rightly. She said, you know, when we read it, his three friends sat with them for seven days in silence before they started talking. I said, oh yeah, that's right. That was good. But here's the thing, I think. After seven days, they were like, all right. That's been seven days, Job. That's enough. (laughs) Move along. Confess your sin. Time to go, right? That there's a part of it as I read it this this week that I, or these last couple of weeks that I realized, oh, there's part of us that is so impatient not only with our own dark nights of the soul, but with the dark nights of the soul of others. And we say to them, all right, that was good, but time to move on. And as some of you know very well in this room, that sense of God's absence is not always easily walked through. And we don't always get to the other side of that quickly. And sometimes our sense that we ought to be getting through this more quickly than we, uh, than we are, and the pressure from others to get through this more quickly than we are getting through it, adds to our sense of the dark night of the soul. And part of what I receive from Job is the sense that every one of us will likely have a moment or moments of the dark night of the soul. And that is not sin, Job. The sense of God's absence is not sin. But it is part of the journey. One last thing with Job. It's okay to be angry with God. 
the laments and what are called the imprecatory psalms invite us to give our hurts and our anger to God. That word, the imprecatory psalms, uh, my Old Testament scholar friend Brent Strawn, we, we had a conversation about those one day. I, those are those psalms. So they're the laments, and Job laments a lot. Where are you, God? Why have you done this to me? I, I know that this isn't right. The imprecatory psalms are the psalms that we pray, not just about ourselves, but about others. They, by the way, they aren't the psalms that get brought into our calls to worship very often. Like, I'm not sure that there will ever be a Sunday where we all join together to say, and bash the babies of our enemies against the rocks, oh, oh Lord. Um, that was a joke, by the way. It's okay to laugh at that. <laughs> we have these imprecatory psalms where, where God's people come to God to ask him to do some really awful things to the people who've done really awful things to them. And, and let me say while I'm on that, please hear this. We say it often, but God never calls us to continue to live in abusive relationships or to receive them as so somehow this is God trying to do some discipline in our lives. God always invites us to stand up against oppressors, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the one who needs to be redeemed from their oppressive ways. But my friend Brent said, Part of the reason we pray those imprecatory psalms is because once we have given that anger to God, then God can figure out what to do with it. And if I pray that God would kill my enemies, then maybe I don't have to go do that, but I can leave that up to God. And part of what I love about Job and Job's anger with God is that forgiveness of ourselves and others and, and even God because part of what Job has to do is not only forgive his rotten friends and forgive the situation, but forgive the God who he feels like has gotten him into this. It's not only right and necessary, but here's the thing. It is, a, it is part of the long obedience in the same direction. And sometimes forgiving ourselves is a long journey and sometimes forgiving others is a long journey and I hope I'm not a heretic this morning, but sometimes forgiving God is a long journey for the expectations that we had that did not get met. For the call we felt like we followed and this is where we wound up. But God shows up. And I wish I liked God's answers better in Job between you and me. I think Job wishes he had better answers. For it's so fascinating that God does not show up and say, Job, I'm so sorry about what's happened. But here's the deal. The accuser came and said, you weren't being faithful because I blessed you. So I took those away, but good for you. You were faithful, Job. Pat on the back. Nothing. Except God gives him this great tour of the universe. Shows them the complexity and the beauty of creation. One time I heard Walter Brueggemann talk about this. And he said, I hate the end of Job because God says, look at how cool creation is, Job. And check out my crocodile. How cool is that? And that's the end. What do we do with that? What do we learn from that? I don't know. Let's go home. No, here, let, let me offer some possibilities. 
When it comes to the problem of evil, what theologians call theodicy, trying to defend God, I think it's important that we admit that we don't always get sufficient answers. And here's something I really had to struggle with growing, um, growing as growing theologically in, in relationship with God. God is far less interested in revealing divine purposes and even in defending the divine character than Job's friends are. If I could be honest for a moment about this, I, when I was in my 20s and 30s and kind of growing as a theologian, it was really important to me that people not hate God. Seems a good thing for a minister to feel. So I felt like I constantly had to get God off the hook for bad things that had happened in people's lives. And by the way, that's not a bad impulse. Because I do think God has given us a tremendous amount of freedom. And there is a lot of complexity to why things happen. But I felt like so much of my work was to try to get God off the hook so God wouldn't be mad at, or people wouldn't be mad at God. But you know what I feel like happened in the process? In the process of helping them not hate God anymore, I eliminated God from their day-to-day life. And left them on their own. And here's the crazy thing. Both scripturally, theologically, but also personally, I ended up with a God I wasn't mad at anymore, but, not, but I ended up with a God I really didn't need to worship anymore either. And the scripture's just not all that interested in getting God off the hook. But God is deeply still involved in Job's life and in Job's reality and in, in the reality of Job's world. Which leads me to this thought, God is not absent from Job or Job's suffering. And the reason it's wonderful that we read this book right now during this season is because the incarnation of Jesus and the cross of Christ is an eternal reminder that God is present in our sin, shame, and suffering. There may be times when, like Jesus, we feel like God is absent and as he hangs on the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I say often during the season, the theologian Jürgen Moltmann says something along these lines. We now know there is no place called God forsaken because God in Christ has gone to the place of God forsakenness. And so here's good news for you. When you are in the dark night of the soul, feeling forsaken, feeling like God is absent. I don't know how to get you out of there quickly, but I can say this with assurance. In the mystery of who God is, God understands God's absence. And has gone to the places of forsakenness. And you are not abandoned. But God is right next to you. Job in your pile of ash. And then finally God's creative action. Is not only more than Job can comprehend. But it also serves as an invitation for Job to believe that God can use Job's suffering redemptively. In other words. I don't know everything God is up to when God gives Job a tour of the universe. But I believe at least part of it is this. That God is saying to Job, Job, the one who created all these things that you can understand about this much of 
has the ability to recreate even the broken things of your existence too. And so trust me, I've said this to you before, one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament is when the people of God come to Samuel and demand a king and God says, I don't want them to have a king. I hate kings. I want to be their king. But they take a king anyway. I love that God doesn't say, oh, all right, we're working with the Canaanites, <laughs> giving up on Israel. The next thing you know, God has got Samuel off to Bethlehem to anoint a king. Every time I read that text, I want to say, what is he doing? He doesn't like kings. What's he doing anointing a hakaton, a, a runt of the litter? It reminds me that in our brokenness, God does not desert us, but God keeps drawing. And in his creative ability, when we offer the broken pieces of our life to God, God is able to use them and recreate and, and bring good when we look to him and are called according to his purposes. So I was stuck on the 57. Jennifer wondering if everybody knew they were going to die someday. Crying and saying to me, Scott, I don't know what to do. I'm so angry with God. Man, I was just a kid. I, I didn't have the theological sense to, for God to throw me into that situation. But I believe I said the right thing to her with tears running down my cheeks. I said to her, I'm glad because I'm really mad at God too. Reached across and held her hand and drove in silence for the next hour or so. This morning as we go to prayer, I, I know there are some of you this morning who are in a place that we might call the dark night of the soul. A sense of the absence of God. A sense of the unfairness of some of life. And I, I wish I had a f three points that start with the letter B that could help you get out of there. And I, I wish I could say, well, all of this has happened for a reason and someday you'll understand it. But the truth is, Job invites us to realize that there are moments and times in life that from at least our perspective do not make sense and may never make sense. But my favorite line from the end of Job is this. Job says, before all this, I had heard of you from the hearing of the ear. I mean, I knew about you. I could get an A on the theology test. I had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And my invitation this morning for those of you who are there would be to 
know deep in your being, even if you can't always feel it, to know deep in your being that God is with you. And that maybe not today or maybe tomorrow, but maybe down the road someday you'll be able to say, I still don't understand things, but I know this. I, God was with me and I know God in ways I did not know God before. And the other part of the prayer would be that you'd be able to take maybe even anger with God and to offer that to God. He's not offended. And allow God to receive that and to dare to believe that the creative force of God may be able to bring imaginably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, even out of our brokenness. And so this morning, I want to open the altar. And some of you have needs that you knew you wanted to bring ahead of time. But some of you, I know it's, it's hard to say things aren't right for me today. Sometimes it's hard to trust that this group of people won't be just a whole bunch of Eliphaz, Bildads, and Zophars. But we'd love to meet with you in prayer today because we believe God meets you there today. And so if you need to pray, I'd invite you to come. If you need to be anointed this morning, if you'll come to my far left or far right, a pastor will come and pray with you. But would you sing with me this morning as we go to prayer?
sing this with me. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows, We come to you in part because like the disciples, we have nowhere else to go. You are the source of life. You are the source of wisdom. You are the source of all things. And so we we praise you, we love you. But with Job's author and with Job, we also confess sometimes that we don't fully understand. We deeply hurt. kind of angry with ourselves and angry with others and we've shown up in church today but we're still kind of angry with you God I pray for some folks here and maybe online today or who may listen to this sometime down the road who feel like Jennifer like their life has been swept away. And it feels like death surrounds and they're just so angry and hurt. They find themselves in what feels like your absence and in the dark night of the soul. Have mercy on us. Keep us from being the Eliphaz, Bildads, and Zophars in people's lives who mean well, but increase the pain. And say simplistic things that even you shake your head at and say, oh, stop. Stop talking, please stop talking.
I pray, God, that you would, um, for those who, for whom you feel so absent, would something of the deepest part of their being, would you, would you remind them that you are not absent? There is no place called God forsaken because in Christ you have gone to those places and you are there. And it may take a while to feel, feel you in ways they have felt you before, but, but assure them that you are there, even in your absence. I, I pray you would help them and help us be patient with the process of forgiving ourselves and forgiving others and at times even forgiving you. Bring godly counsel into their life where it's needed. Bring patience where it's needed. Bring healing because it is needed. May even today being able to articulate those things be the beginning of your creative power making things new. And we trust you. We trust you. We trust that you are able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We trust that you are able to take even the worst things of life and bring good. And please, we understand it's not that those things happen so these other things can happen, but somehow in the mystery of your sovereign love, you are able to take the worst things of life and not let them have the last word. And that's what we want. We want your sovereign love to take even our hurts, and so we offer them to you and invite you to bring beauty out of ashes, life out of death, creation out of nothing. And we trust you to do that. And so be with these who have come to the altar this morning. Some have deep needs. I pray, God, that you would work in ways that you will and in ways that they can see and maybe even as much as possible begin to understand. And so move in us, we pray. Make all things new. For you are the creative and recreative God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless state and has shed his own blood for my soul. Stand with me.
couple of things as you go. Um, next week uh, on Sunday evening, uh, we'll have a, our town hall meeting. Our year ended and those of you who are interested in those things and want to know more about what's going on, would love to have you come at six o'clock in here to talk about that. Um, and just a, a word uh, from our family. I, I'm going to cry. I didn't get an extra hour of sleep last night. Um, so, um, one of my favorite—excuse ah, me—one of my favorite things that we do is we get to dedicate children, right, and invite the body of Christ to be the body of Christ for kids. When we lived in Oklahoma, uh, two rascals joined our family, Jonah and, and Sophie, while we were there. The people at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene, on your behalf, made a covenant that they would love and care and nurture and pray for those young people. And you know, the, the commitment that Oklahoma City First made, uh, the folks in Richardson, Texas followed. And the people in Pasadena did that too, amazingly. And, and you have done that. And they're still kind of rascally 
bigger, but no less rascally. Um, our family, one of the blessings in a couple of weeks on the 25th at four o'clock, Jonah and Perry are going to marry each other. And I get to say stuff to them about it and say, do good and love each other and kiss each other. Um, would love for you if you're available to come and do that. Part of the challenge of being a pastor is you feel like the whole body kind of belongs to you and, and you do. And thank you for the ways that you've loved our kids uniquely. And so a few of you have asked, are we invited? And yeah, some folks in Oklahoma made some covenants for you that you need to fulfill even as they become adults. And so we'd love to have you come um, and be part of that. If you've listened well this morning, sometimes we sing it as well with my soul as a statement of faith and not as a statement of current reality. In trust that the God who meets us even in the dark night of the soul is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. And because of that, we can say it as well with my soul. And so now unto him who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us, the people he calls his church, and in his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who meets us in the places of God forsakenness now and for all generations. And God's people said, amen, go in his peace.